right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Pool Scene Podcast, episode two. I am Kevin Bradway, along here with Jim Sabella. What's up, Jim? All right, all right, all right. Uh, yours might have been a little bit better than mine, but neither of us compared at all to Matthew McConaughey in the movie we covered today, the 1993 coming-of-age comedy, Dazed and Confused, directed by Richard Linklater. Now, it's a movie that, as we were watching it again before we started recording this podcast, I even said that it doesn't feel like this was filmed in 93. Like, the whole time, it made me sink right into 1976. Carter's about ready to become president. It's really, really great cinematography. Yeah, it's it's fantastic as far... I mean, Richard Linklater is obviously a great director and, and nailed it. Uh, so let's get into the plot. The movie takes place, again, 1976 in Texas. And it's the last day of school. I, I would say that the two main plot features follow students, juniors in particular, who just ended their junior year and will now be seniors. Only juniors. Seniors went away. They died. I don't know what happened to them, but they don't exist. We don't see them. And uh, so basically, these, these juniors who are becoming seniors, they're trying to have a party and they want to haze some freshmen. That seemed to be probably the more important of the two is that they really wanted to haze some freshmen. That's the only tradition they have in that town. So obviously there's a lot more that we will certainly dive into. But Jim, please tell us about this movie's performance and the world that we were living in when it was released. Okay, so this movie was released on September the 24th, 1993, and if you are all keeping track out there, that's nine days after my 12th birthday. It was a budget of $6.9 million and only grossed $8 million in the box office, so basically not a hit whatsoever, couldn't cover costs, kind of a bomb then. And it was, I mean, it was, I think, I don't know at the time, critically it was very well reviewed, but... It's funny to think of it only having a, a six-plus-million-dollar budget because it's got Matthew McConaughey, Ben Affleck. It's a who's who's before they got super big. Yeah, yeah. So looking back now, and you're like, wow, they made this movie for $6 million. So what else was going on in 1993? So number one song in America was Dream Lover by Mariah Carey. Striking Distance starring Bruce Willis, where he played a police. I think he was just an officer, but he was on a boat. It was the police boat movie in Pittsburgh. I cannot believe that that movie was number one in the box As office. As I looked, it was only for one week. And then two weeks later, uh, something big came out in 93. I can't remember what it was. And it just took over. Oh, Demolition Man. Okay. Demolition Man took over two weeks later. I guess that, that tells you the star power of, of Bruce Willis at the time, though. I mean, that movie, I don't remember it. I don't really remember anything about it. But the fact that it was number one, probably on Bruce Willis's name alone. And Die Hard with a Vengeance didn't come out for another year. And other memorable things happening in September of 93. The Cleveland Indians, our team, won their very last game at Municipal Stadium. X-Files and Frasier premieres. And the Anaheim Mighty Ducks that came from the Disney movie debuted as a professional hockey team. Flying V, y'all! Woohoo! Go, Charlie! Okay, so let's tackle some of the characters in Dazed and Confused and who they were played by. We, we already told you. We have Ben Affleck. We have Matthew McConaughey. Top build in this movie was Jason London. Not, not Jeremy London. Not Jeremy London, but they Jason London. Uh, he played Randall Pink Floyd, the QB of the football team. And really, the struggle for Randall Pink Floyd in this movie is that he, again, he's the, the quarterback of the team, and the football coach wants him to sign this pledge that says 
He will not do drugs or anything that would be detrimental to the success of the football team. It's kind of the equivalence to a prom promise that we all had to, quote unquote, sign before prom. That kind of relevance. Was it true in school if you signed the prom promise or whatever and then you got busted that the fine was like higher? It was there was some conspiracy. Theory I have no that. idea. It seems like it was complete bullshit, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I remember I got a pen for signing the prom promise. That's worth it. Yeah, big time. I was like, no, I'm, I want to do drugs. Drugs. Yeah, uh, weed. Uh, also, top build in the movie. Well, I don't know if he's top build. Was uh, Wiley Wiggins as Mitch Kramer? Mitch Kramer is the the incoming freshman. You know, Randall kind of takes him under his wing after he gets uh, hazed. We had Sasha Jensen as Don Dawson, who's great in this movie, but you would not probably even recognize him. Even kind of has a chrome magnet head. Kind of looks like Buster Poindexter, who did the song "Hot, Hot, Hot." Yeah, yeah, lead singer of the New York Dolls. Yes. Uh, Michelle Burke is Jody Kramer. Michelle Burke is Connie Conehead, and she's she's been working the whole time, I mean, since 93, but she's really good in this movie, and quite I mean, hot. She's, yeah, she's attractive. I, I don't really understand why it wasn't a better career for her. She seems very personable, uh, too. Rory Cochran, who uh, plays Ron Slater. Who you might know him better is Lucas from Empire Records. Yes, uh, very playing a very different role. For a long time growing up, when I would watch this movie, I had no idea that that was the same person. Uh, but he plays kind of like a fun, you know, stoner trope conspiracy theorist, we could call him. He, he, I think at every scene in the movie, I don't think there's a scene in the movie where he's not smoking pot. Uh, we have Ben Affleck. He plays Fred O'Banion. And he fails his junior year, and he is participating in the hazing for a second time. So he's returning as a two-time senior, and he's the one who he takes the hazing a bit too serious. Big time. That's all he seems to be interested in is that hazing. There's a memorable payoff scene involving O'Banion that we'll get to. Uh, we've got Adam Goldberg as Mike Newhouse. Anthony Rapp as Tony Olson, Marissa Rabisi as Cynthia Dunn. Those three hang out as a trio, kind of as the intellectuals of this movie. The nerds, the, the nerds, nerds. kind of geeks. But Randall Pink Floyd, who's the star and the star quarterback, seems to be hanging out with them a lot at the party later He on. seems to be the guy that you would not expect in high school that is the star quarterback who's going to be the star senior quarterback, apparently. We don't know. But he seems to go that extra mile to encourage you know, include everybody. And even though he's into the whole paddling shit, he doesn't seem to mind to just say, man, I respect you. Hang out with us. We got you. I think we, I had some people like that in my high school, I think. I sure as hell did not. <laughs> so, were you one of the intellectuals getting paddled? No, I just never went to school. Okay. Uh, we have Matthew McConaughey as David Wooderson, who is... <laughs> He's in the his best. 20s, it's but gladly best. hangs out with high school kids. He works for the city. He's thinking about going back to school. I don't know if that's specifically like a high school equivalency. He or sure as hell is not going to college. He's talking about getting a good enough diploma. That's what he's going to get. I think he just wants to be around the high school kids. So. I agree. Uh, we have Cole Hauser as Benny O'Donnell, who's pretty good as well. Uh, Mila Jovovich, Dallas Corbin multipass as Michelle Burrows. She hangs out with the uh, stoner triumvirate. We have Joey Lauren Adams as Simone Kerr, which is Randall Pink Floyd's girlfriend. Yeah, there's there's rounded out by some some other. There's Clint, who Jim likes quite a bit. <laughs> He's such and a prick. Uh, Sabrina, who's the freshman version of uh, kind of who tags along with the seniors after she gets hazed. 
So, Jim, after running through uh, most of the characters, which actor would you actor or actress would you say gives the best performance in this movie? Well, I kind of have two. I love Cole Hauser's character. What was his name again? It's uh, Benny O'Donnell. Benny, Benny O'Donnell. I love Benny. He does this scene near the very beginning of the movie, which I'll talk about when it comes to the logic section. He has this weird fascination with Jason London's character, Pink, having to come back for his senior year. It just it all envelops around him and what's important to him. So he's kind of a selfish character, but we'll get in more about that. But another guy I want to give mad props to is my eighth grader, soon to be freshman, Hirschfelder. Now Hirschfelder, he's the fat kid that hang is basically friends with Mitch. It's his triumvirate, basically. There's one scene in this movie in which he's at a, looks like a rec center dance. It's apparently not a, maybe an end of school year dance, possibly, but I don't see how it could be. Well, if they were graduating from middle school yeah. to go on to high school, okay. it probably was a chaperone dance. But there's a secret room, I maybe not secret, but a private room in which his buddies walk in and catch him making out and feeling up another chick and they basically forced him hey man we gotta go if i'm hirschfelder i'm the chunky kid that probably nobody has ever paid attention to i'm staying there and i'm making out with the chick the entire time oh, yeah to give a baseball reference i mean he's definitely uh, like batting out of his league oh, big here time big with time. this girl and his friends are like hirschfelder come on and he's like okay why? Why would you go? Just stay there. Make out with the chick. He's making out hardcore. He's playing tonsil hockey. He's grabbing breasts. I mean, why the hell would he, you want to go? He's probably the MVP of this movie when you think of his character arc because he's also involved in the revenge on O'Banion later in the movie. So good. So and, good. Uh, yeah, he's, as far as characters go, the MVP. As far as performances, I can't give it to anyone but McConaughey. How he's, can you not? He's like playing himself, sort of. He or? has been Wooderson for the past, what, how many, what just came out in 93? 93. 27 years. Yeah, he's been 20, 27 years. Of 27 Wooderson. years as Wooderson. I mean, come on. So uh, as far as any non-lead characters and, and stealing scenes, we talked about that last week. In this one, I'd say Sasha Jensen, who Jim referred to as Cro-Magnon Man. Cro-Magnon Man. He wears uh, overalls. In this movie, and if Jim were playing that role, he would wear no underwear. I, I never understood the concept of wearing underwear under overalls when I was little. Okay. And he, uh, again, he's someone who worked after this movie, did like an episode of a bunch of random TV shows. But I, I don't really understand why he didn't have a more successful career along with Michelle just, Burke. Just look him up and you'd go, oh, that guy. Yeah, probably, He's that guy guy. Probably. So... That, that covers the characters, and we will get into them and how they played in their scenes as we transition to our best scenes. Let's find out which scenes made a splash. You see what I did there? I like that. Very good segue. Okay, so I've got first one of my favorite scenes in this movie because, I mean, I mean truly... I will say Richard Linklater is kind of a master director. He went on. He's a multiple-time Oscar nominee. He made School of Rock, Boyhood, Bernie. made the Before Sunrise trilogy. He definitely knows what he's doing. He's not a hack. And uh, there's a scene. So uh, Mitch is at his baseball game. And if you're the seniors who want to haze the incoming freshman, what better place to do it than at the Rec League baseball game where most of those teams are probably made up of incoming freshmen so they wait for the kids after the game they get a hold of mitch and the paddling scene they cut out all the gnat sound it's just you know they've got the the pots turned up on 
Alice Cooper's No More Mr. Nice Guy as they paddle Mitch. And it's just, it's memorable. It's been parodied in some things. It's definitely a memorable scene to me. So I've got that first. Okay, so my first scene that sticks out in my heart, how can you not talk about Wooderson doing the high school girls line? That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. (laughs) That line alone has been Matthew McConaughey for nearly 30 single years. I think I mean, when come he won on. an Oscar, I think he said, all right, all right. Or, He's either done all not. right, all right, all right, or that, that I, the high school girls, you know, he, so iconic. He also does, you know, I like them redheads. Like, he does... <laughs> He has that. He's he's fantastic in this movie. But the weird thing, he, he seems to come across as a bit of a statutory rapist. Absolutely, he is the king of statch. Yes, absolutely. No, yeah, no question. So that's, that's my number one. I've got the freshmen get their revenge on O'Banion, which we touched on. So uh, a somewhat significant portion of this movie takes place at this pool hall, where it's like which is a really cool pool hall has like an arcade. Ball. And uh, the the seniors, they bring Mitch along after they pat on. They tell him, hey, it'd be really cool if you showed up. You know, it'd show those guys that it didn't bother you that much and that you're, you're a cool, you know, cool cat. And they bring him to the pool hall. He had just ran an errand and he comes back, uh, essentially runs into his friends and he says, hey, you want to get O'Banion back? And they, they don't explain the uh, the setup to the heist, essentially. But you see him tell his love interest in this movie, a a sophomore girl, you see he kind of uses her and she tells O'Banion or lets O'Banion overhear her saying that they got Carl, who's his friend out back. So did you hear they're busting Carl Burnett out back? Whoa, whoa, what did you say? About what? Carl Burnett, what about him? I just heard he's getting busted, I don't know. Benny, they got Burnett back. Let's go. Carl Burnett? Yeah, they got him. Outside? Yeah, let's go, let's go. Give me two, three minutes, let me finish this game. All right, fine, get me out, let's go. Hey, you hold him for me. And Carl's mom had pulled a gun on O'Banion earlier in the movie. A double-barreled shotgun. A double-barreled shotgun on a high school student. Technically, he's probably 18 because this is his second senior year. She pulls a gun, so O'Banion's really got a hard-on to take this out on Carl. He really wants to get Carl. So he's got Carl outside. He pushes everyone around the, out of the way. I would like to dedicate this first lick to your mother. Fucker. Oh, not yet. Oh, it's getting warmer. What the fuck? Remember me, you pig? Fuck you! Damn it! 
What we didn't see is that Mitch's friends had actually went up to the roof and were waiting on O'Banion to give Carlos licks and they dump buckets of paint or gallons of paint on him and he has an absolute meltdown. And it's, it's weird that this is Ben Affleck in this role because he's not very Ben Affleck like like he loses himself in this role to the point where you're not really like uh, it's suspended disbelief you're not really like I'm watching Ben Affleck. He gets paint dumped on him, he goes ape shit. He gets in his car which is hilarious because wouldn't you get paint all over your seats? It would basically wreck the hell out. And he has a pretty good car. Granted the front of it or I should say the whole outside of it is primered. It's not painted but the interior is pitch black. Yeah. He's got white paint all over him. And then wet. He, he hauls off but you know, the funny thing about this this scene in, in particular is is all this happens in one night. This is this is like, uh, you know, Spike Lee do the right thing happens on the hottest day of the year, and that's the backdrop for everything. This is the last day of school. This is basically, I would have to say, from 3.30 in the afternoon till probably 7 a.m. the next morning. Yeah. I think and, that's a good way to I, put it. I mean, I can remember that last day of school feeling. Like, you go to school, some teachers try to give you something to do, but you're kind of just like, I'm over this. You've checked like, out. I'm wasting the day. We're going to watch movies in class, and... I'm going to get out and I'm going to go crazy. Do so. I remember going to like to the lake with my friends, just getting into all kinds of shenanigans on, on the last day of school. So that's, that's a backdrop for this. But anyway, what, where I was going with this is, yeah, sure. They got him back and dumped paint on him and he leaves. But do they not have to share the same hallways with him the entire school year? They're going to be antagonized for the remainder of the year. O'Banion, I don't see how they're not. O'Banion is going to terrorize these kids. He'll seem to forget it, apparently. That's what they're thinking. I, I don't know. But also, you have to remember, these are the same kids that earlier that day when they were let out of class, they're eighth graders becoming freshmen. Somehow, their buddy, Carl, has a car. Yeah. We're, who the hell out there in eighth grade has their own car? I know this was 1976, but still. I don't know if he, I don't know if they say it, but I don't know if he like takes his mom's car or what, but he literally had a car drives. waiting. He drives. Yeah, it's super, super bizarre. They're, and they're, the, he flashes the keys, or one of the friends flashed the keys in class, and we're like, let's get out of here. They ask their teacher if they can leave a little early to try and get out of this, this paddling, and the teacher's like, I don't give a, sh- a shit at all. Like, teacher is basically laughing. Like When I brought up Cole Hauser's character, during that scene before Carl and his buddies head off into his own car, apparently, they pull up in the truck. It's Cole Hauser's character, O'Banion, and it's, uh, it's Pink Floyd's character. They pull up. Apparently, he has a PA system in his truck. He has a PA system in his truck. Why not? Who doesn't have a PA system? He pulls up to the truck and alerts the entire school. Hey, you three, we're coming to paddle those asses. Enjoy being freshmen. Meanwhile, the teacher, who admits he was fresh out of Vietnam, is sitting there laughing his ass off. Okay, all you freshman fucks, listen up. It's your lucky day. Usually you'll be spending your freshman summer to get your asses busted and running for your worthless little lives. But this year, because we feel so sorry for you, we're going to take it easy on you and save us all a lot of time. So if you meet here, right here, after school today, you only get one lick from each of us. But you run like cowards. Well, it's open season all summer long, boys. Oh, yeah, Mitch Kramer? Mitchie, 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 Mitchie. <laughs> We're looking for you, pal. Your ass will be purple before the day is over. Have a nice afternoon. 
throughout this whole movie, there seems to be no social order except at the very end where you see cops. But other than that, no law, no order, nothing. Well, when, when I mentioned Mitch is at the baseball game and they come to the baseball game, they're drinking open containers at the baseball game. So it's the seniors to show up with a bunch of beers and park their asses down and drink beers during the baseball game. At a rec league game that at- seems to end somewhere after 9 o'clock at night in so, their 8th graders. Yeah, so they're standing behind the dugout and they're like, your ass is mine, we're going to get you, it's time. And the baseball coach you'd think would have the cojones to tell these seniors like, hey guys, you know, get get out of here, take it somewhere else. But no, the, the coach, he didn't care. Nobody cares. They it don't was have, a different time. We don't have, yeah, I think that's most of the, the flaws in this movie we can chalk up to it was the 70s. Things were different. There's more flaws in this movie than logic displacement, in my opinion. Yeah, there's not a lot of logic issues, but there's a lot of just like us having to, to rely on the thesis of it was the, the 70s. It was the late 70s. Okay, so my next one, I'm saving the best for my third one. So my next one is they all seems to be the whole school minus the seniors or some of the people in the surrounding area that are about to be seniors meet up to have a party at the moon tower. Now, the moon tower basically is an observation point there in town. I don't know where, but it's out in the woods somewhere, varying distances. So as the three intellectuals show up, they get picked on by this guy named Clint, who is your well stereotypical greaser. There's, there's a reason. So yeah. essentially, Clint and his friends are standing there drinking. What, was, what, what name did you say? Clint. I think you said Clint. Clint, oh whatever. <laughs> you can be Clint. I don't care. But uh, as, as they're standing there, they're smoking pot. And they're drinking. The one, uh, Adam Goldberg, as Mike Newhouse, walks by, and he says, what? Uh, it smells so, like somebody's smoking some smells reefer. Smells like somebody's smoking some reefer here. And Under his breath. Which is, uh, who cares? No it's shit, a, it's a everywhere. Very, yeah, it's a very just off-the-cuff yeah. observation, which is the word he, uh, he uses, because Clint, Clint, not Clint. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Clint. <laughs> There's an N in it. Comes and pushes him, and he says, what did you say? Yeah, and he says, I, "I just made an observation. Somebody smoked uh, some reefer." Uh, uh, I just he made. Says, it, what are you, Isaac Newton? And he, you can tell Clint is there to fight. He's charged up. He's going to fuck somebody up, basically. Yeah, and that's probably Clint's deal every day of his life. Yeah, he's the douchebag. But Adam Goldberg, this Mike Newhouse character, he's—I mean—he has another scene in this movie where he—he he goes off. He's a very high-strung, very <laughs> anxiety-riddled, and he's sitting in the back seat and he's talking about, "I just want to do it." And they're saying, "Look, I got a confession to make." What do you mean a confession? Look, you know, been like the last year or so, I've been talking about going to law school so I can be an ACLU lawyer and be in a position to help people getting fucked over and all that. Uh-huh. Well, <clears throat> I was standing in line at the post office yesterday, you know, and I'm looking around, and everybody's looking really pathetic. You know what I mean? I mean, like, people are, like, got drool, just sort of stay and then, like, this guy's bending over. You could see the crack of it. It was, oh. it was just, like, wife beaters. It was, it, anyway, it was... Oh. And, uh, and I realized I, I just want to do it. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it sounds good and all, but I, I just have to confront the fact that I really don't like the people I've been talking about helping out. You, you, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't think I like people, period. I mean, you guys are okay. I, I, I'm just trying to be honest about being a misanthrope. So you're not going to go to law school? What do you want to do then? I want to dance. Out of nowhere, he doesn't really dance, which apparently dancing means fighting because he gets all worked up after Clint says this to him, a.k.a. Clint, says this to him. So he gets worked up and... uh, And, you know, his other friends are saying, man, just let it go, let it go. He's like, I just feel insulted. And so 
He drinks and drinks and drinks some more, decides to walk over to Clinton, his boys, pours a beer on his head, and drops him with a perfect right hook. Like, who would have thought he'd have that kind of punch on him? If only... Well, he kept him down. Well, he also thought he's he was trying to reason with his friends. He's like, listen, I can get the first punch in. And after I get the first punch in, people are going to see a fight's about ready to happen. So they're going to break it up. So and I just have to play defense for a little bit. That's all. Well, guess what? Everybody's stoned. Everybody's drunk. They don't go in right away. So Clint gets back up, spears him, and then just starts wailing on his gut. Oh, it's like mountain, ground and oh, pound. Oh, he's, he's full mount, ground and pound. Like Herb Dean in UFC would all of a sudden, he'd wave the fight off. It's over. Then finally, like Wooderson and Pink ends up stepping in to stop the fight. But that fight alone seemed to give him like some sort of like bravado. Like when he was driving home, he seemed to like the bruises on his face. It kind of made him feel like more of a man, maybe more of a macho stance. Again... These two have to share the hallways the entire year. And Clint being the way that he is, I just can't He's imagine. He's a greaser. I can't imagine he would drop like drop it. He's probably going to mess with this kid and remind him every day, "Hey, I kicked your ass, man." So that's you know most most of this movie takes place un- unravels or unspools at either the moon tower or the pool hall virtually yeah yeah and at the pool hall you've got the other scene where they they go in a car ride together mitch tags along because as i pointed out they basically ask him hey are you coming along it's like no i'm gonna stay here where i don't know anybody and i'm gonna be by myself yes of course so he goes along and they're throwing stuff out the window just being hooligans they're trash cans throwing trash cans at mailboxes and stuff the character of don gets the idea bowling ball there's a bowling ball in the back seat throw the bowling ball so mitch goes you think i should and they say yeah yeah throw the bowling ball so mitch tosses the bowling ball ends up throwing it through the back windshield of a car so i think he earned some respect there but that's a memorable scene and then they get to a like a 7-eleven or a convenience store where one of the guys whose mailboxes were broken shows up and basically points a gun with a 38 little pea shooter and they don't bring that up again i i would think if i were 17 and somebody put a gun in my face i'd go back to the party and be like guess what happened holy shit guys somebody, somebody pulled a gun somebody pulled a gun in my face after mitch threw a bowling ball through a window so that that's a memorable scene for me. All right. So my last memorable scene in this movie contains the second worst cringiest line in movie history. As we will say further on in this podcast series, when we visit Twister, the cold drinks line is my number one. This line you are about to hear is the second worst cringiest line I hear in this movie because it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. It is so annoying. Here it is right now. Say, man, why don't you run over to the Centennial over there and uh, pick me up a six for this stuff? Think you do that? Uh, thanks, man. Good luck. It's kind of the way he delivered that line. He does some sort of like pulsating yeah, and head move. Yeah, that's the thing is is it's not just the words. It's it's his like. Can you he do that? This, this head dip. He kind of like body uh. rolls into it. Is how you could describe it. He body rolls into the sentence. You think you could do that? Fuck. So that that what that question transitions into a whole good sequence, which is Big where time. he asks Mitch to go buy a six pack at the store, and Mitch goes, "Yeah, I could do that." So Mitch is thirteen or fourteen years old. He definitely looks like it. He's thirteen or fourteen. He's a incoming freshman, yep. so he's at most fifteen. So he goes over to the store and he actually jacks an entire speech that Wooderson gives, which he talks about. Working for the city, putting money in his pocket. Mitch, so the clerk doesn't ask for an ID or anything. He just says, you're 18, right? And Mitch says, 
yeah, I uh, just graduated, working for the city, just got a little money in my pocket. He gets the beers. That's a good scene, too. I remember it, you know, from uh, watching this movie all the time in Jamie Grant's basement. Shout out, Jamie Grant. We'd watch this movie like every day of the summer. And, uh, but so Mitch walks back across the street, the character who asked him to go over there, and he hands him the beers. The character instantly gives all the beers away. All six packs. He's oh, just he throwing them. You want one? Pack. You want one? You want one? He may have got one of his six beers. When, in actuality, in O'Banion's car, was it? No, it was in Wooderson's. No, it was a. Was it, was it was either O'Banion's or Cole Hauser's. Cole Hauser's car. His, his trunk is full of bottles and cans of just beer. I mean, enough, Warm beer. enough to fill the trunk yes. completely. So it's it's insane. I, I don't know why he just pays for this beer that he gives away. It blows my mind. That's I mean, if you watch this movie, and I hope everyone's familiar with it. I mean, it is definitely a classic. I, I Quentin Tarantino has this as one of his top 10 movies of all time. So I would say it was a little harder to just cherry pick specific scenes because the entire movie is great. It works as one big scene, essentially. With that, we are going to transition into break and our pool check segment. Pool check! So as we explained last week and every week, the year of the movie that we cover, we will do the top five music videos for that year. In this case, Days and Confused 1993, absolutely loaded year. Huge, huge year for I, MTV. I thought 98 was really difficult to pick just five videos. And then I looked at 93 and I'm like, I have like 10. I can't, now I like, can't cut this one. Like we said last week, we have to kind of delineate between music video and actual song because there's a ton of great songs on that music video list but you have to go by music video only well that's that's how i managed to cut some of them that's how i like, do it some of my favorite songs ever because prince is seven seven by prince is my favorite prince song but it's on the music videos i it's not no some of yeah some of my favorite songs are in 93 but i'm yeah. like this is, video is just a bunch of dudes standing around it's nothing groundbreaking so let's get into it uh before we spend too much more time uh, my number five is Rex and Effects Rump Shaker. Now, again, from a song versus video standpoint, this video just takes place on the beach. Teddy Riley of Blackstreet fame, pre-Blackstreet. He's got a camcorder. Um, there's girls. There's boats. But the reason I bring this one up is because last week during the pool check, I talked about dicks, specifically big puns, six-foot dick. <laughs> this week... The reason I put Rump Shaker on here is because there is a line in this song that says, you've got the body of the year, come and get the award. Here's a hint. It's like a long, sharp sword. What does this dude's dick look like? A claymore, probably? <laughs> I have no idea. It's a long, sharp a fencing, dick. A fencing looks sword? like a sword. Whose dick looks like a sword? So that's the only reason I put this on here, because I'm like, sword dick over here. It's just scaring girls away. My number five, I was looking back and forth because, like I said, I have to differentiate song for music video. So this one is from a movie in 1993. Of course, it is from the Three Musketeers soundtrack. It is Brian Adams featuring Rod Stewart and Sting. It's all for one. Hell yeah. That is such a great song. Now, the movie, don't remember much about it, don't really care. But that music video incorporated not just the three of them, because let's be honest, at the time, the three of them, pretty damn huge. Yeah. Rod Stewart still is holding on, but when you look at Brian Adams, he was the king of like the common man 80s rock. 
Sting was about to hit it big after this. Well, he already did with the police, but his song Demolition Man came on after this. But this song, all for one, like the chorus alone just makes you feel like you want to be a Three Musketeer when you don't want to watch the Three Musketeers. It is such a good song. It's great three-part harmony. It's good chorus. I have no problem nowadays being 38 years old and putting my song on on Spotify in the car where you can find this podcast and Apple podcast and play all for one. So that would be my number five music video of 1993. So Brian Adams became kind of a, a soundtrack guy in Huge. that era because he did, was it Robin Hood soundtrack? Yes, he did. Uh, Everything I Do, I Do yeah, For You. Which is maybe his biggest song. And he did the uh, Don Juan DeMarco soundtrack. So Brian Adams became a bit of a soundtrack guy. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, Kenny Loggins probably has a, a mansion up on a hill somewhere. Hey, you make those single, man. Single money doesn't matter, man. Single money, album money, it's million dollars, man. So it don't matter. I've got, at my number four, I've got Nirvana in Bloom. This is pre-Cobain suicide, but the thing I like about In Bloom is it's this whole uh, Ed Sullivan, you know, Beatles type video, but it kind of showed that Nirvana, more than a grunge band, they had a sense of humor about it. I mean, it's a black and white video of them, you know, slick down hair and suits playing the song. And it's it's entertaining. It, it definitely probably the funny thing about Nirvana is, is obviously iconic music stands the test of time. But their videos were never anything to write home about. But In Bloom was probably my favorite of all of their videos. Even Smells Like Teen Spirit wasn't really a great music video. No, it was just a live performance. But the a, song was phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those songs that was considered one of the greatest of the 90s. Yes. But In Bloom is so great. It's, it's very underrated as In Bloom. Yeah, I totally agree. My number four. And of course, we're going to hit Aerosmith again from back-to-back weeks because we covered Armageddon last week. This time, I picked Living on the Edge. Now, I'll never forget my dad buying Get a Grip on cassette and just listening to this over and over again. And this song was number one for a shitload of weeks on MTV. But Aerosmith always seems to associate Alicia Silverstone in almost every music video for that album. Yeah, this this music... Well, for one, Days and Confused starts with Aerosmith. The movie kicks off Playing an Aerosmith, and song. at the end of the movie, they decide, "Hey, we have to go get Aerosmith yeah, we tickets want front the next row day." Tickets to Aerosmith in three weeks. Uh, it's the event of the summer. The other thing about Living on the Edge is the video starts with Steven Tyler, and he's painted half the background's like solid black, and he's painted half solid black, and he's holding his junk. And I remember seeing him just like hold his dick and balls in one hand, and thinking like. This is crazy that they're showing this on TV. On MTV. And then the performance stuff, they're like almost in like a demolition man set. They're like on the edge of the earth and there's like some toxic sludge or something. It's a great chorus too, man. I mean, once you hear it, it just gets stuck in your craw. So that actually is a good transition because I have Aerosmith at number three, but I had Crying, which is uh, Alicia Silverstone who is dating Stephen Dorff in the video and he's kind of a jerk. She catches some cheating at the movies. And she, I guess, vows revenge. I don't, I don't know. Um, but in the video, she gets like a bad chest tattoo. Again, is is hell bent on revenge on Steven Dorf. But the thing about this video is that later in the video, she gets her belly button pierced, and the video ends with her standing on the bridge, bunch of police. They bring Steven Dorf out, and it looks like she's about to commit suicide by jumping off the bridge. So Steven Dorf gets real close, and she jumps. When she jumps, you don't see any strings, cords, or nothing. It looks like she's plummeting to her death. However, at the last second, a cord snaps. Not even like a bungee cord, but like a cable. And she descends down off of this bridge. But being a, I don't know, 9 or 10-year-old when this video came out, I was always like, is that cord attached to the belly button piercing? 
It's what it alludes itself to, though. It almost looks like it. It would, like, disembowel you. Actually, no, it wouldn't. It would just pull the, the piercing through your... It would hurt like an mf or Yeah, big and, you time. Would, and then you would fall to your death. I, I don't know why they did that. I don't know if you have it in your list. Hopefully you don't. There was also Amazing by Aerosmith in 93. So they had three really big videos in 93. So going from rock to rap, my number three is a very memorable music video it's Snow Informer. Hell yeah. Now, the big thing I can never forget, my mom taking me to Hills and buying the single cassette, 12 Inches of Snow, but just Informer. Who gives a crap about the album? At that time, I just wanted to hear the singles. This video was known for having, it was basically black and white. Every now and then it mixed in color, but they had the lyrics at the bottom because Snow was a speed rapper. Yeah, I don't think they had the lyrics at first, I think. After people were like, "What's he saying?" They added the lyrics. It was all you know. Most people that would sing the song in a karaoke place would always blam a licky boom. He had always I always found weird that he would say blame blam. Yeah. And but everybody would know Licky Boom Boom down. Yeah. And then Snow just came back last year with Con Calma with Katy Perry yeah. and them, and they used the sample from Informer, so it's kind of transcended itself a bit. And a lot of people remember this song because it was a white guy who had flow. This was the only song he was ever known for. Definite one hit wonder. He made his money, he made his nut off this song, but at least the video, you could somewhat follow along with the lyrics, and that always stuck out to me. The thing I liked about the lyrics and not being able to understand them was the fact that when MC Sham, was it MC Shan or MC Sham? I think it was Sham. When his verse starts, everybody knew that verse because it was like, that's your chance to jump in and, and know... Yes, it was slower. Part. It was slower. Great pick. Before we, we go any further, Living on the Edge also has an Eddie Furlong appearance. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Terminator 2, so shout out. These videos had, they had Alicia Silverstone, Steven Dorf, but they also had Eddie Furlong. So uh, my number two, a little bit not as funny or anything, is Soul Asylum, Runaway Train. So the thing about Runaway Train is that they agreed to make this video. The director kind of had a vision. I just read, because it's the 25-year anniversary of this, and I just read about the director had a vision. Hey, we're going to show all these lost kids. Essentially, if, if you're not familiar with the video, they put pictures of missing children and say missing since and give the dates. Well, Soul Asylum said we will only do it as long as the video stays in rotation. And every time if and when these kids are found, we will recut the video to include new missing children. And that's not cheap at all to do, man. That's, that's, that's not. thousands upon thousands of dollars. It's labor, too. But regardless, it turned out to be worth it because of, I think there's like 35 kids shown in this video. Legitimately, like 27 of them were recovered. So that's amazing. It's, it's just such a, a great story that a music video had that kind of reach. I mean, MTV at the time was... You know, very popular. People were watching the music videos. So that's, you know, good song. And the, the video had, had a heart, definitely. So that's my number two. So my number two is something that kind of means a lot to me. With this song, I bought the album. It was the first time I was able to buy my own CD with my own money. This next one, it's Naughty by Nature off their album, 1993. It's Hip Hop Hooray. Had to have been, by far, the song of the summer, if not the song of the year. Everybody knows when you throw your hands in the air and wave yes. them like you just don't care, it's because you're doing Hip Hop Hooray. Ho! That song was the anthem, not of just the summer, but of like MTV. If you think of the song like I do, I'm thinking of like Rock and Jock B-Ball Jam. Yeah. I'm thinking of the Dan Cortez 50-point shot. It just connects me to MTV. This song was so 
poppy and so mainstream, even though it was a rap song, but it made you think, hey, there's other guys in the band besides Stretch. There's KG and there's also Vinny. So this song stuck out to me. Granted, they had OPP two years earlier. I get that. But this was the first time I ever heard Naughty by Nature. My number one, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, nothing but a G thing. Classic. This absolute classic. I mean, you can remember this video. Uh, it's a cookout, you know, in Compton. And the, the thing about this video, this is like when, when gangster rap buried its claws into to mainstream white America. But when NWA was out, they didn't really have music videos. I mean, even... I mean, you really couldn't have an NWA you, music video. You couldn't. And even yeah. if you did, I mean, there was a, a war... Tipper Gore on on parental advisory and so on, but nothing but a G thing kind of gave you a look inside life in Compton and this cookout that they were having. They were all wearing you know hats with the marijuana leaves or they, uh, Dre wearing his uh, customary white socks hat. Yeah, and they had the lowriders you know hitting hydraulics through the streets. So this yeah, but it great video, legendary. I mean this it was the start of of something big. Gangster rap you know lived on for the next. You know, several it years. was basically the start of the East Coast West Coast War. Yeah, this song, I would say so. Yeah. Okay, so my number one is a very iconic music video. You always think of the little B girl yeah. in this video. I will say personally, not a big fan of the song, but the music video is fantastic. Blind Melons, No Rain. Yeah, I'm glad you picked it. I I felt bad leaving it off because this may be. And probably is the most iconic video in 93. Because all I can remember about this music video, because I haven't watched it in a long time, it's the girl in the bee suit. Shannon Hoon, I will totally agree, had an amazing voice. He did. He went way before his time, just like many of them did. Cobain, you know, even going back to Jimi Hendrix. But that, his voice was so good. And that music video is just so iconic because the imagery is still used to this very day. Right, just the imagery alone. I mean, the the narrative is that this little girl performs at her school or whatever wearing a bee suit. She does like a tap dance routine and gets laughed at. So she kind of runs the streets crying. You see Blind Melon playing in a field doing hippie shit that hippies do. And then eventually the girl finds a field of other people dressed yeah, she like does. bees. So I would say the most iconic video in 93. So I'm glad that you included By it. By far. We did miss uh, quite a few. Uh, we had REM Everybody Hurts where you see what everyone's thinking as they're stuck in traffic. They all get out and walk. You've got Ice Cube. It was a good day, which... I know every word to that song. I, that's a song I can sing from memory. Spin Doctors, Two Princes, another great 90s song. Yeah, you had, again, if we were going by song and not video, you've got Gin Blossoms, Hey Jealousy, which is definitely... Our buddy favorite. Jake Johnson, it's his number one song of all time, yeah, and I totally get it. it. It's top five. The, yeah, it is one of the greatest songs, but, I mean, nothing great about the video. Or Found Out About You, same thing. But you have another great Lenny Kravitz, Are You Gonna Go My Way? Cypress Hill, Insane in the Brain. Arrested Development, Mr. Wendell. You had Onyx Slam, shout out to Mike Antler, who asked if that would be on my list. Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You. Yeah, Salt and Peppa Shoop. It's so good. Oh, it's Cypress Hill, Insane in the Brain. There's yeah. so many. You had Silk Freak Me, which the thing I love about that one is it's just like a horny, horny video. I want to get freaky with and you. Silk, one guy had talent, this guy that sang the chorus, and everyone else in the band just like did like air humps and talked down parts. He was, they were there. And then finally, Tool Sober. That was my introduction to Tool. It was a claymation video, just kind of like spooky little dude claymation. They had made a few videos like that. So 93 was was insane for music videos. And I'm looking forward to, to seeing what we do next week and, and what our music videos will be. So that does it for the pool check. Everybody back in the pool. 
Let's get back into the movie, Dazed and Confused, where we talk about logic. So this movie's pretty straightforward. There's not any like time travel or space. Nothing or, like last week, where there were a ton of logic issues. But I do have a couple of questions. Number one, where are the seniors? They don't exist. The outgoing seniors. Now, we're led to believe that these juniors who are graduating junior year or, or finishing up junior year and now heading into senior year are the ones who run the school, but none of them are friends. Wouldn't the seniors who are graduating high school want to party? The only technical senior we ever come across is O'Banion because he decided to fail just so he could stay back another year and whip ass. That's and I it. See, I see why no one would want to be friends with O'Banion oh, from he's his the class. Biggest douchebag. But where are the seniors? It doesn't look like there's a lot to do in this town. It's as if the last day of school happened and they said, fuck it, I'm out. Bye-bye. We're moving away from home. I'm abandoning my parents. Fuck them. I'm out. It's really weird. As a kid in Days and Confused when I watched it, I don't know why I couldn't understand. I thought that these were the seniors who graduated. See, for the longest time, I thought, okay, it's the seniors who are ready to celebrate. The incoming freshmen here were getting hazy. But no, they're I, juniors. And that might make more sense. It would. The fact that, but then you know the whole pledge thing goes out the window because he wants to return to, to win a state title in football. But it's really weird. There's no seniors in this movie. You don't you see some people in the school celebrating as the, the bell goes off, but you don't you physically don't it, it again, last week we said in Armageddon, why not make it longer than sixteen days or eighteen days? My question here is what would be the problem if some of these seniors were in this movie? I don't get they it. They could have made a couple of these characters like Tony or just some of the... Like, like the ancillary in, characters. Yeah, they could have been like, hey. Like, hey, we're seniors. We graduated today. And they could have had a couple lines like... Like Mitch's feel? sister could yes, have been a graduating Mitch's, senior. Yes. And you could have asked her, hey, how does it feel to be done? Yeah. But for some reason, senior, they just don't exist. No seniors. So my next one is, like, like Kevin and I said, we don't. there's not too many logic issues that we came across. Another one I don't get is the pledge itself. Now, the pledge throughout this movie... It is inferred that Pink needs to sign this pledge in order to play football his senior year because he is the starting quarterback. I don't know how he is because if you look at him in the film, he's like a wet 150, 155 tops. No muscles whatsoever. But as Coach Harps on him, I need you to sign this pledge. I need to see your commitment to football next year. So the whole time, he's very noncommittal. He throws. At one point, he crumbles up the pledge and throws it down. Somehow, it ends up back in his glove box. There's a logic point right there. But everybody seems to be getting on his case, like Cole Hauser's character, my dude that stands out for me, at the Moon Tower party, sits with them in his truck and says, Hey, man. You do not want to miss the most important time of our lives playing football your senior year. And you're thinking, okay, this is the time for him to say, hey, this could get you out of this podunk town. You can mean something. You can make money, maybe become pro. But then he turns it on. And he's like, hey, man, I don't want to miss this. You're going to screw it up for everybody if you don't play senior football. So you have to sign this damn pledge. And at the very end of the movie, you see that Pink has the pledge and he throws it in his coach's face yeah. and basically says, I'm not going to sign this. I'm basically going to want to do drugs and drink the rest of the well, summer. Screw says, this. I might play. He might. But I'm not signing this. But basically him saying that the coach wants him to sign it. So if he doesn't sign it, the coach isn't going to let him play. That's what I would think. That's kind of what's inferred. My problem, and, and this is probably what you're getting to, is that why not just sign it? And then do whatever What's you want What's the big anyway. deal? Like, oh, I sign it, whatever. Get it over with. Yeah. It's not like the coach is going to follow you with a camera and Again. go, oh, did you just have some of the reefer? Again, it's, no. like, the, it's like the prom pledge. It's just sign it, and then... It's over with, but he, draw, you want anyway. he draws it out the whole damn movie, and he cannot even mean it. There's no way to enforce it, because in this movie, there are no cops in this city. 
There's no way to enforce anything. Lawlessness rules. Just sign a damn thing and get it over with. Yeah, just just sign it and be done. It's it's not that big of a deal, and it they make it into a major issue, and it's just it probably could have used some some bigger conflict, which is like the fact that Pink is cheating on his girlfriend. You totally forget he even has a girlfriend. He yeah. never really brings it up. No, he's he's dating uh, Joey Lauren Adams, but you don't know that they're even really dating. They're bege- together in the beginning of the movie, but the only reason you know he's with her is because when he kisses Connie Conehead in the woods, <laughs> I love how you keep calling her Connie Conehead. He he starts feeling her up, and she like she's fine kissing him. Don't you but have soon, a girlfriend? Yeah, but as soon as he he feels her up, she says, "Well, what about Simone? Why aren't you like you have a girlfriend?" I mean, to me, that's a bigger conflict. They could have turned his conflict into, what do I do? I've got... The pledge could have been an overarching thing. Like, yes. I pledge a commit to... It's a, it's a pledge of commitment to everything. That's yes. how they could have made it, but they yeah. didn't. Yeah, his big conflict is just, do I sign this piece of paper or not? But also, a big shout out to Jason, not Jeremy London, rocking a puka shell necklace the entire yeah. movie. Hell yeah, bringing Jason, it back. Jason London's a crazy one because... With everything that he was in, he was the lead in everything he was in, and you would think he would have had this mega career, and it just it never happened. I mean, uh, this is a great role. I mean, I think he's absolutely worthy of playing the lead in this movie. And I completely would, agree. But it, yeah, what just what happens to these people? Like, who decides that Jason London doesn't get to go on and, and be this fantastic? Yeah. Anyway, the I, I've got to get to it. My biggest plot issue, and I've got a couple more things to talk about, but I'm just gonna bring it up now is when you watch this movie, this has become a, a very a cult thing, and, and probably 10 years after this movie was released, so probably early 2000s, everybody started talking about when you watch Mitch, as played by Wiley Wiggins, <laughs> every scene he is in, he touches his nose, like the bridge of his nose, or he plays with his hair, he like flips his hair It's back. his nervous tick. He does it... Hundreds of times. And there is a drinking game. You drink every time that Mitch touches his nose or flips his hair. You'd be dead. You would fucking die. Like, in seconds. Like There's one scene alone. Like, Kevin and I are watching this movie. It's like, hair, hair, hair nose. nose, hair, nose. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And AV Club actually interviewed... Wiley Wiggins in 2011. What an unfortunate name to have. I mean, not to insult people but odd names, but Wiley Wiggins? Yes. But when he does the interview, the the whole point of the interview is kind of like, what was your deal, man? Why were you touching your nose and your your face so much? He does the interview. He kind of shits on the movie. He almost seems to blame this movie for pigeonholing him or typecasting him into a specific role and that therefore like thwarting his career but they ask him why like why did you do that and he basically says like i was just i guess he kind of chalks it up to being just like an awkward nervous kid being like a tick like jim said well if you watch days and confused was released on criterion so strangely enough the first two movies we've done have been released on criterion which we discussed last week on the criterion commentary richard linklater says that he purposely edited this movie this way to portray Wiley Wiggins' character, Mitch, as this nervous, awkward kid. However, he still had to do that. And I don't think he was being directed to touch his nose and his hair every time you see him. The dude, you can tell just by looking at the kid, he's very socially awkward. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So he kind of, in response to Richard Linklater's comments on the Criterion commentary, he says he's kind of doing me a favor in saying that, but it's bullshit. Like he didn't edit it, edit it that way on my behalf. He just, you know, I that's just me. I'm awkward. So that one again. If you play, if you watch this movie or watch it after this podcast or next time you watch it, play the drinking game. Take a drink every time Mitch touches his nose or hair. Just make sure you don't drive afterwards because there's going to be no way you can function. Like everyone in this movie. Yeah, drinking and driving, smoking joints in your car, or doobies as they call them, just whatever. Okay, so my last one is the fact that they're playing rec league baseball, and Kevin and I are watching this. There's no sunset, so apparently this rec league, after the last day of school has happened, is maybe taking place sometime after 9 to 10 p.m. at night. That's what I, I mean. This is, this is you know, last day of school, so probably around... You're thinking 9.30-ish? Summer solstice was probably yeah. the longest day of the year, so it probably wouldn't get dark until... Nine solid nine o'clock, but it's pitch blackout. Yes, I played not rec league, but I remember playing baseball when I was younger. We were done by seven. It was never night when we played because there was no lights. Right. So if this is the seventies, I mean, who knows? Who knows? It's it's probably even if the game started at seven o'clock and was seven innings and was a high scoring game or something. I mean, may it. We do see the last pitch. Yes. So the game's ending right about 9 o'clock. It just seems like what damn game would go that late for those... Those kids are 14 years old. Yeah, it's pretty late. And it's... so. I, I, maybe my mom, I, granted, my mom was an outlier and she overprotected me like crazy, but w- would you let your 14-year-old just be like, all right, I'm, I'm going to be out doing rec league and drinking all night? Well, I mean, be, I, I think you're continuing this point, but that's, yeah. that's another thing about logic for me. True. Were his parents at the game? Apparently not. No adults were at the game, and nope. no adults are anywhere to be seen in this movie, other than a, a couple instances. The gas, the gas station attendant, and the dude with the gun. There's no there's and the kids and the guys, uh, guys' parents that didn't want to leave the house for the party because yeah. the pig showed up. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of like no authority figures, no no parents stopping any of this, no cops stopping any of this. If the game ends at nine o'clock, give they give Mitch his his spankings, his paddling. Pink gives him a ride home. Which is incredibly nice. Of like we said, Pink is a fucking saint in this movie. So if it's got to be at least nine o'clock because it's pitch black. Roughly, it's got to be. So they paddle him. They he gets off the field. They paddle him. Every all of his friends take a turn paddling him. So we're figuring they're leaving the field at roughly nine thirty to nine forty-five. Yeah, Pink drops him off at his house and tells him, "Hey, you want to go out tonight?" You know, and he lets him get ready. So then we got to figure eleven o'clock. Then I would say so because if he drops him off around ten. I don't know where Pink lives, but say Pink lives even you know a couple neighborhoods over. He goes home, gets a shower, gets dressed, comes back, pit, picks Mitch up. They they probably don't pick Mitch up until eleven. They go to Top Notch. They go to this pool hall where there's another example of authority figures. This pool hall has who owns it? Fourteen year olds <laughs> drinking, smoking reefer, smoking reefer inside the pool hall, and there's no employees there to say, "Hey man, how old are you? Like, why are you drinking?" But um, there might have been a guy standing at the door when Mitch came was. in with that six pack. But it was he's but more of a like a, finger point. Might have like, been a pal, you know, might have been, been not somebody that worked there. So anyway, they go to the pool hall. They go to the top notch. They decide to have a beer bust. They have the beer bust. I mean, by the end of the movie, you do see that 
it's I mean Mitch comes home and it's light outside and his mom seems to be completely forgiven like listen I gave you a pass his own sister who is going to be a senior got home hours earlier granted I give Mitch a lot of credit he made out with that girl he met at the moon tower party listening to seals and croft as the sun came up so we kind of figured this movie takes place anywhere from three o'clock to about 7 a.m the next and, morning and I will say I'm I mean I'm a grouch if I don't get sleep but pink goes to school goes to his friends goes to the baseball game goes home gets a shower picks up mitch stays out all night gets you know they go to the football field in the morning which we haven't talked about and then they get busted by a security officer who calls the coach it's light outside they leave straight from there to go buy their aerosmith ticket straight on so he has not slept in well over 24 hours, he seems totally fine. None of them are drinking coffee or anything. I would not survive. No, I'd be done for. I'm I a would... real dick when I don't sleep. Exactly. Yeah. It's just crazy to me. Like, that's one of the... Maybe they were just doing speed because it was the 70s. So, and then the last thing I want to touch on on the logic was we brought it up. Hirschfelder <laughs> is like a little porker. And for some reason, they, they made him to be the... You know, the, the Casanova, he's at this this school dance. Again, no authority figures. He's in this make-out room with this girl. and There's a make-out room at a school dance. Yes, at a school dance. And then he gets taken away by his friends, and then he ends up dumping paint on O'Banion. And I'm pretty sure O'Banion, after he leaves with paint on him, he probably goes to Hirschfelder's house and... I would love to have known if Albanian went after him and just rolled him over with a car, just literally smacked the <laughs> shit out of him. I mean, he has to spend the whole year. It's crazy to me. Yep. So on that note, what is the legacy of this movie? Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, I will say. <laughs> it's Matthew McConaughey. It's, it's one-liners. It's the all right, all right, all right. It's the all right, all right, all right. It's the high school girls line. Again, a launch pad for a lot of careers because if you could make a movie for $6 million that had... At the time, Jason London, Joey Lauren Adams, Ben Affleck, Matthew McConaughey, uh, Marissa Rabisi, Adam Goldberg. I mean, you you name it. It had a bunch of actors who did other things, and it was in one movie for $6 million. It, that tells you at the stage of their career. I would love was. to have seen what their contract were for yeah, this movie, so what, how cheap they paid Each them. of them probably got that for like their next movie. So yeah. McConaughey... You know, the whole total movie was made for $6 million. McConaughey probably got $6 million for like a time to kill. You know what? They might have paid them chief, but told them, okay, you'll get X amount depending on how much this movie makes at the theaters. Like, you'll get gross. Richard Linklater made this movie. think it probably opened a lot of doors for him. He probably started getting money thrown at him. He went on, obviously, to be Oscar nominated several times uh, for Boyhood mostly. Bernie, great director. And then there is a loose sequel to this movie called Everybody Wants Some, which takes place a couple years later. No returning characters, kind of just a spiritual sequel made by Richard Linklater. He has a love of baseball, obviously. You see the baseball scene in this movie. Everybody Wants Some is about a college baseball team. And it's kind of like disco has started, but everybody's sort of this dazed and confused character still. So I would recommend it. I've seen it. It's a good movie. And then finally, I'm going to do a new feature every week for the movies that we cover. Which drink pairs well with this movie? It wasn't really hard to figure out. It's cheap gas station beer. You get your Bruce City Lager. You get your Blatts. You get your Natty Lights. Yeah. You, you want to watch this movie? You drink some cheap beer. 
maybe smoke a little reefer. Oh, big time. And watch this movie. That's that's my, my drink pairing. I totally agree. On that note, do we want to announce what we're doing next week? Go ahead for it. You announce it. Next week, we are going to uh, give one to the ladies and the gentlemen that love this movie. Hell yeah. We're going to do Dirty Dancing. Woohoo! And we're going to learn about Johnny Castle. All right, guys. Have a good one. Check us out on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you rate and subscribe. Tell your friends. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Pool Scene Podcast. We'll check you guys out next week. Have a good one. Goodbye and good night. With that, this has been The Pool Scene Podcast. Cue the cars. <laughs>